I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. We are getting back to this book of of Exodus that we've taken a, a little stint away from for a couple of weeks here for obvious reasons. I want to resume walking through it even as we prepare in just a couple of weeks really to to dive into our summer series, which is going to be looking at selected psalms, just taking a psalm each week or a portion of a psalm and, and working our way through those over the course of the summer. We've got several weeks left in uh, Exodus, and as we look at these verses today, what I want us to see first and foremost is kind of the landscape. As we look at this, we are, whether we realize it or not, chomping into a worship sandwich in the book of Exodus, chomping into a worship sandwich we uh, have somewhat uh, skipped over a portion of this. Uh, chapters 25 through 31 are the first, uh, the bottom slice of bread, delicious bottom slice of bread to that sandwich that describes to us, how to God's people in the Old Testament, how they were to approach God in worship. Right ways to come before Him, to bow down before Him and recognize His greatness. So it's a, it's an elaborate description through those chapters, but an important one. That's that first slice of delicious bread in this worship sandwich. And then in a couple of weeks, we will look at some passages in verse, in chapter 35, all the way through the end of Exodus, which are very similar to those other chapters, that other slice of bread, that top delicious fresh baked slice of bread, which is, again, a picture of this worship, this right worship of God. And then we find in between those two delicious pieces of bread in this worship sandwich, chapter 32, and the unsavory, the rotten meat of human idolatry, of our propensity to manufacture for ourselves Little lowercase g gods at every turn to replace the true God. We're going to see that today. That's kind of the bad news of this sandwich. The good news of it is that there is, if you will, a uh, a sauce, a, a spread that is layered over this meat, and that is the work of a mediator coming on our behalf. We're going to see that in these verses as we read in a minute. As we look at Moses, and we're going to see in Moses, I hope you'll see with me, a picture, a foretelling, a foreshadowing of Christ, the true, the ultimate mediator, that mediator that comes and stands in between. And as I thought about these verses today and think about what's going on in our state, it may seem that these you know, chapters in Exodus long ago, how, how do they relate? How do they connect? Well, at least one way, I can tell you right off the bat, that they relate and connect, is this reality of a mediator that we have in Jesus Christ. It's all important for people now across our state that have lost loved ones, and many have gone to funerals, and those have been sad times, but as they knew, if that family member who was lost or friend was lost, they knew that they trusted in Christ, that their hope was in Christ, that they had a mediator, take great assurance, even in times of sadness, that those ones are with the Lord in heaven. We take assurance as well today for ourselves as a as we stand and some of us wrestle. You see these kind of storms come across our state and you wonder, well, what about my life? I thought some things were secure. I'm feeling very insecure now. A lot of fear welling up. What a joy to know that we have a mediator, one that stands in our place. We can have the assurance of our salvation. And then we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but I hope you'll see as well. 
that if we've got one that mediates God's love into our lives for us, then if we're going to follow that one, the Lord Jesus, then we can become, in a sense, in a, in a different way, mediators of God's love to those around us. That's what we're doing when we're serving, when we're giving, when we're going to connect and help. Part of what we're doing is mediating God's love to people around us. So it all ties in, I think, even with what's happening for us today, as we read these verses again, what we're going to see is the root of idolatry that we are prone to, these idol factories that we are. And then we're also going to see the beauty, I hope, as we look at these verses of the fact that God allows his wrath to be mediated so that we can experience his love as well. I invite you to stand with me just in recognition of God's word and its power. Exodus chapter 32. Hopefully that gives you a framework of where we're headed. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 32, as we start, Moses has been up on the mountain meeting with God, with the true God. And this is what is happening down below, just to set the context a little more. Exodus 32, I'll read it aloud, and you all read along with me uh, through verse 14 uh, silently. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of this land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made the proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and made for themselves a golden calf. I've worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, and who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation." Of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out, to kill them in the, in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, that they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of 
bringing on his people. And one more verse, verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. You can be seated and let's pray together again. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would work in our hearts and lives through this word and confess readily to you, uh, all of us here today, prone to produce, manufacture idols left and right in our lives, substitutes for you. Help us, Lord, to come to a good recognition of that, that we might more deeply embrace the work of this mediator on our behalf and be strengthened in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how many of y'all have had to endure that class in high school, perhaps, or college, known as Western Civilization. But if you actually made it through the Middle Ages and kind of paid attention a little bit after that, you came upon something called the Industrial Revolution. I can't say that I'm an expert in it, but I know that it was this time period where folks went from kind of manufacturing things in their homes or in shops attached to their homes, artisans and so forth, in little shops, to operating big facilities with lots of workers and churning out on that conveyor belt a constant flow of materials headed out into the world. We're so removed from that today that we even have awesome shows on the Science Channel like How It's Made. I don't know how many of you have enjoyed that program. gives you the 57 steps and pieces involved in making a child's cap gun. It might describe the process of mixing the 40 ingredients together for Hellman's mayonnaise. might give you a description of how the polymers are assembled to make the perfect water ski. I'd like to find out how it's made, how it is produced. I have the uh, blessing of living with a bride. I I tend to overcomplicate life, and my sweet bride is able to present a more simple perspective on life. For years, she always enjoyed opening that case of new, uh, the new tub of butter and seeing that little perfect dimple on top of the butter. And, and, and saying, wow, that is amazing how that guy gets that, that thing right every time. So, you know, we, whatever we think about it, these factories are churning things out. They're producing things. And whether it's one guy sitting there in a shop or whether it's a whole factory of people, it's churning out. And one of the reformers, Calvin, was right when he described us in our spiritual state as simply those who are outside of the work of Christ those who are idle factories, I-D-O-L, those that churn out things constantly, it seems, looking for something to turn to instead of the living God for our hope, for our life. And that's certainly what we see in these verses. So I invite you to look with me at these verses. We walk through these three points. And the main idea is obviously, I think, from this, that our souls are indeed idle factories. But what a beautiful thing that we can be retooled if you will, retooling is when they come in and change a factory over. It used to be to make uh, uh, guns and weapons, and now they make cars and boats out of it. They retool it to allow it to be used to make something else. So, too, the, me- the mediator can retool our lives in a good way. 
We're going to look at these three questions then that, that come out of these verses for us. The first one is, uh, why do we make idols? The second one is, uh, who is it that's making these idols? And the last one is how the mediator provides rescue from these idols. So let's dive in to this first question. Why do we make idols? There's a lot of reasons when we think about it. It's a pretty complicated question, really. It's kind of like that confession time we do each week. Sometimes it seems like i got nothing on my mind, and I'm thinking, Lord, I really should have something on my mind. Other times it seems, well, how am I going to narrow this down? we only got 20 seconds or so to do this confession time. Uh, we're uh, churning out idols in all different ways. Well, why do we make them? Number one, under this first point, or A, I guess, if you will, is we do it because we're discontent. We're discontent. And we've looked at that before in Exodus. It's a theme, so we ought to, hopefully that's getting through into our lives. That You know, it's not one of those things that's real obvious, maybe, that's real blatant area of sin, but it's an underlying current that drives our hearts away from the Lord. We can clean it up, we can dust it off, we can make it look real nice, but discontentment is something that really drives a lot of our turning away from the Lord. And then we see it in verse 1 of chapter 32. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Okay, so here it's taking kind of its particular form of impatience, if that's a particular brand of discontentment. Here we see it. They see that he's taking his time coming down, and because they're impatient, then they move to produce something else in its place. It's like the dating couple, impatient for marriage, finds it difficult. To maintain that purity that God calls to, just like the sales person who's depending on that income and that sale has been slow to come through, it's easy to be tempted then when you're impatient to cut the corners, round the edges out a little bit ethically in the work. It's like the lady who's heard the comments that are hurtful from another lady in the church or in the community, finds it real hard not to say something about her. When she hasn't come and asked forgiveness as rapidly as she would like. These are the things that we're impatient for. When we're impatient, then we run to idols. And it's interesting as we look at these verses, it's not just about time. That's not the the sole sum of it, but it's about people. Look at what they do. The end of verse 1. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and told him to participate in this. So it's the people and their leaders participating in this together. And so we're an impatient people. That's part of why we make idols. Another part of this is that we, this is going to sound a little backwards, we're worshiping people. That's why we make idols. We're worshiping people. Take a look with me at verses 5 and 6 here again in Exodus 32. They've made this idol. The absurdity of it is, you know, almost incredulous that they can fall into this because you've got picture this Aaron takes all this gold he turns around back here chink 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 puts this thing together turns back around and said this is your god as if he wasn't the one that just turned around a second ago and manufactured this thing and yet look at the absurdity of it verse 5 and 6 because we're worshiping designed to worship god made us to run to something to find our life in something verse 5 says when Aaron saw this he built an altar before it I mean, why not? We're worshiping people. Let's go Let's go full on, even though this is a little cow we just produced. And Aaron made the proclamation, said, tomorrow we'll have a feast to the Lord. They've even got a schedule and a design around it. 
just like we learn as we make idols in our lives to structure our lives around them, to put a structure to it and to make little altars to them and bow down to them as well. We see this taking place, so we're a worshipful people. As I was thinking about all of this in our propensity to idolatry, I picked up this book that I read not too long ago. I've probably referenced it before, but it's a real interesting little read. In fact, we might, we might find a way to work this into life groups or something like that. Death by Suburb. Death by Suburb. How to keep the suburbs from killing your soul. Now, not, not all of us here probably live in what an area we'd call suburbs, but a lot of us probably do. And this is a pretty interesting book because he talks about the spiritual implications, the idols that we ramp up and produce. He's got a couple of really entertaining things to say. Let me read a couple of them to you. He describes kind of this uh, culture that we live in and its propensity to produce idols. He said, the seven-year-old birthday parties in which the party favor your son scores on the way out cost twice as much as the gift he brought the one-ton SUV in the driveway, the golden retriever with the red bandana romping with two children in the front yard, the Colorado winter vacations, the bumper sticker trumpeting, my daughter's an honor student. Those are the dreams of suburbia. And like me, those are my dreams. And then he goes on and he says, I, th- I think of suburb, this, my suburb as a safe and religiously coded as it keeps me from Jesus. Or at least my suburb and the religion of the suburbs obscures the real Jesus. Living patterns of the good life affect me more than I know. And then he offers some hope as well. And we're going to get to some hope today too. He says, yet the same environmental factors that numb me to the things of God also hold out promise. I don't need to escape the suburbs. I need to find Jesus there. And just to dive in a little bit more, he highlights a couple of topics. I'll list a few of them out for you in a minute. But one he talks about is education in our kids. And I know some of us have grown kids, and so maybe we're moved beyond this phase. But a lot of us are right here, and some of us can remember this. He talks about the mentality about children in our culture. And he's talking about himself as one who's sort of learning, an apprentice in this suburban idolatry. He says, I absorbed quickly, absorbed quickly that my children's education needed to be approached like an NBA championship. No detail was too small. No standardized test too insignificant. Education was not really about learning, but about winning. One day after the report cards, a friend of my oldest nine-year-old child reprimanded me when I asked him if he felt good about his report card. Listen to this kid. <laughs> My dad tells me it's not nice to tell people your grades because some people don't get straight A's like I do. <laughs> he goes on in this book. I'll, I listed the titles out here just so I don't have to flip the pages. But he lists some of these, what he calls environmental toxins. He calls them environmental toxins. For us, they're, let's just call them idols. That's what they are today. He says each chapter has a different subject that he follows. One is, I'm in control of my life. I'm in control of my life. Is that not an idol that we have? Another chapter, I am what I do and what I own. I am what I do and what I own. Another one, I want my neighbor's life. Another one, life should be easier. Who hasn't felt that? Should, should not life be easier? Aren't I entitled to that? 
I need to make a measurable difference with my life. He's not opposed to us making a difference, but he says some of those things aren't always measurable. Another one, my church is the problem. My church is the problem. And then a final chapter, he says, what will this relationship do for me? Relating to one another strictly out of what we can provide or benefit each other. So death by suburb, just a few of the ways we bow down and worship. Those are kind of the cleaned up ways, if you will, acceptable ways, popular ways. Nobody's probably, they're, they're probably in some senses the more dangerous ways because nobody's going to get in our face about them. Look with me back at these verses again for my last point, point C, I guess, under number one, is that idolatry, we, we pursue idols and false worship simply because we're immoral people, because we're godless people, because we want something other than God. Look at verse 6. It ends with this sentence. After this worship, isn't this interesting? They've gathered for something they're labeling worship. And what do they do right afterwards? The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I don't know why um, generally everything that we read in our translations of the Scriptures, the English translations, are pretty right on target. I would say this sentence is a little lacking here from looking at the different texts and looking at the commentaries. It's talking about them getting drunk, and the play it is describing here, folks, not to be, um, not to be too direct, but is uh, an adult form of play between men and women. We're not necessarily a married to one another. This is a debauchery it's describing. So we move to idolatry, not just because we uh, have the opportunity to do it, because we're worshipful people, because we're discontent, but we actually move towards it because we want it. And we want to dive into it. I jotted down a, a quote from Aldous Huxley. You may be familiar with him. He was a British philosopher and psychologist. In the first half of the 20th century, um, did not claim any adherence to religion. In fact, was greatly opposed to all of those things. It was interesting how open and honest he was about the motivations of trying to live life without God, about why he did it. And I think it applies to us as well in the places that we run to our idols. This is the man who wrote The Brave New World, if you're familiar with that. He says, for myself, as no doubt, as for many of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essential to liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously from political and economic systems and also from a certain system of morality. The supporters of these systems, he's talking about Christians in the church, he said the supporters of these systems claim that in some way they embodied meaning for the world. Listen to this last sentence. said, there was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. That's some of why we make idols. Who actually make idols? The idols. Some of us might be here and we're saying, hey, amen, I hear you. That's where I am. I'm so thankful for the grace of Christ because I need that. Others of us here might be 
Not sure whether we buy into this. How does what I'm doing today relate to these folks making this little calf? Well, actually, they're, they're just outplays of the same thing, the same root desires there. And what I want you to just see here for a second is that it's everybody is involved in this program, just like all of us today are involved in this. Nobody's exempt from this. Look at the verses again. Who initiates this? The people. They saw Moses was gone, and they grabbed Aaron. Do you remember who Aaron is? He's Moses' brother. Do you remember what Aaron did? He was the one who stood with Moses when he did all. God did all of these incredible feats. That's who he is. So he's not some guy off the street. He's not some spiritual slacker. He's not some fellow that's been out of a church or spiritual things for a while. He's right at the center of it. And in a moment's notice, he all of a sudden buys into this whole program and is producing this idol. He's now leading the whole thing. So it's not just the people. It's the leaders. It's everybody is involved in this. Everybody's touched by this idolatry. Last thing I want us to see is the beauty of the picture in these verses. I think we, I hope we've all seen the diagnosis of our problem here. And I hope one of the things we pray through is, God, what are my idols? And maybe even know what those things are. We each have some that we love to move towards. And, and get them in your mind so that we can begin to be shaped in a different life. If we don't evaluate ourselves at that level, they're going to sneak up on us every time. So what does the mediator do for us? Well, look with me at verses 7 and 10, 7 through 10. I'll just summarize them, but one thing in particular jumps out to me. It's just a very, very sad part of these verses. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of land have corrupted themselves. I thought about what a privilege it is to be numbered among God's people, to have him say, and it's a refrain throughout the scriptures, so it's not something new or creative that I'm coming up with. All throughout the scriptures, one of the best things you can have said about you is for God to say that you are among his people, that you are my people. You should tremble that this would ever be said of us, that God would distance himself in this way. From us, So we see that there. Jump down with me to verses 11 through 14. So God is about to destroy these people. And he actually gives Moses a chance to be the foundation, kind of a new Noah program. Kind of we'll rebuild this whole thing with you, Moses. Very interesting to see what the mediator in this case, lowercase m mediator Moses does. Look at the three things he pleads with God about in these verses 11 through 14. Verse 11, he says, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? It's reminding God, these are your people. They are your possession. They are to be cherished. It's reminding God of his promises to be in covenant relationship with his people. Then jump with me down to verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out? He goes on to describe the reputation of God that would be threatened by this. Isn't it interesting what Moses, he's not saying anything about how good these folks are or how they've really got a little bit of good in them. He's just saying, Lord, please, for your name, for your identification with these people, please show yourself strong. And then verse 13, 
He says, remember, Abraham and Isaac, remember the promises that you made to your people long ago. So remember your word. Remember what you promised. That's part of why we learn the scriptures as well. When we're in times of darkness, when we're in times of difficulty, when we're struggling with faith, it is such a good thing that even if it's just one or two verses from the scripture, to remember those things, to remind ourselves of them, to remind ourselves of the promises of God, because he's steadfast in them, even as we heard this morning in our Sunday school time. Now jump with me from there. So take all of that. That's Moses, lowercase m. And I want you to look over to the book of Hebrews because these verses just absolutely demand it. Hebrews is all the way towards the back of the New Testament. It's before James and, and Revelation. It's after uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and so forth. But look with me at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And just, I, I hope you will delight with me. Having seen the propensity for idolatry that we all have at the glory of what Jesus does as the fullness of the mediator we need. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews, he's describing Moses versus Jesus. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, he's saying you who are believers, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. And he explains that. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. One more passage from Hebrews, and we'll summarize all of this up. Hebrews chapter 9, flip there with me, verses 11 through 15, carries this theme forward. Now contrasting more Jesus with the high priest, but bringing in this same concept of him as a mediator. So I think you'll be able to track with what's being said here, starting in verse 11 of Hebrews 9. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of deviled persons with the blood of goats and of bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called they receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. What are these verses telling us? Displaying to us that we've got in Moses a rudimentary form, actually a small form of this mediator. Moses comes in and says, God, don't show your wrath against all this idolatry. They deserve it, but show yourself to be true to your own promises. And then we see in Jesus the fulfillment of that. One last passage, Matthew 4. As we conclude, turn with me there, 
right at the beginning of the New Testament, of course, Matthew chapter 4, we've read before perhaps in our lives or heard before about the temptation of Jesus when he comes toe-to-toe with Satan. Look at these verses, and let's read them together as well. I'll read them to you. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay? How long was Moses up on the mountain? Forty days, right? How long would the people wander in the wilderness after that, after they failed to go into the promised land? Forty years. And listen to what Jesus is doing after fasting, verse 2, 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answers, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, You are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bring you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only shall you serve him. And the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Verses in Matthew are not bad verses for us to look at and have a lesson about how we can resist the evil one when he comes in and tempts us and we can know God's word and give it back to him. That's not a bad lesson. It's not a bad lesson at all. But if that is the only lesson that we take from Matthew chapter 4 and what Jesus has done, we're missing a big, big part of the picture. Moses was up for 40 days. He came down. The people were wandering the wilderness as punishment for 40 years. Jesus goes and he fulfills what we can't do. He does perfectly what we can't achieve. And especially that last temptation where the Old Testament people were prone to bow down to idols and we're prone to bow down to idols. And Jesus perfectly, in perfect obedience to the Lord, says, that's not what I'm going to do. I stand for something else. What a beautiful thing, then, that we can have this mediator, capital M, mediator, Jesus Christ, who stands in our stead before the living God, who offers us grace and righteousness, his righteousness, on our behalf. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do thank you for the way that your word connects together the themes of your love and redemption. And we come before you as those who confess to you we are idle factories. We are prone, some of us, to produce self-righteousness. You call us to goodness and to walk with you, and we turn our attempts at obedience into self-righteousness and judgmentalism towards others. Father, you give us a bountiful provision, and we take that provision and turn it into idols of greed and self-sufficiency. Well, Father, in all of these ways that we can look across the scope of our lives, we see, Lord, our propensity. And so we are so grateful today that you have sent this one, Jesus, 
and the fullness of the mediation that he provides for us. Let us rest in it. Let us hope in it. Let us even now as we gather and sing and also celebrate at your table, let us delight in what he has done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.